0: Hello, I'm Luke Turner. Welcome to Why, the podcast that asks the big questions about science, technology, life, and the universe. <laughs> When we look back over our lives through the dim mists of time and failing memory, what are the things that will stand out? Will we bathe warmly in our achievements, or will our greatest hits be more of a farce, more like an episode of You've Been Framed than Ben-Hur? For some reason, the memories that stick are more often slapstick than heroic. What is it about those toe-curling moments in our lives that means we can't shake them? Why can't I forget my embarrassing memories? As Michael Miller from John Hopkins School of Medicine writes, each time we have a new experience, we form new connections between neurons in the brain. These synapses create new circuits between nerve cells, essentially remapping the brain, and they get stronger or weaker depending on how often we're exposed to an event. So how can just one experience come back over and over with such painful clarity? Why is this happening? Do embarrassing memories in particular serve a biological purpose?
1: So these powerful emotional memories have more presence in our brain. We have a certain dedicated system to make sure these things are remembered. Dr Dean Burnett is a neuroscientist and author. You did that thing, that was wrong. Never forget that. (laughs) Don't ever, ever forget that because we don't want that happening again. So keep playing it until you learn and you might never learn. So I'm going to keep playing it again and again and again until the message is cemented. I really want to know... Which
0: part of the brain stores these memories?
1: Memory is stored sort of throughout the brain, throughout the cortex, as far as we're currently aware. The way memory is stored is really quite complex. It's not like lumps of you know, specific standalone files, like in a hard drive. It's units of memory being sort of connected to each other. So, say if you have like a long-term partner, like a wife or a husband, you don't need to remember their face every time you see them. Because then you have like thousands upon thousands of copies of that same information. So you have one memory of their face, which is linked to all the new experiences which involve them. So it's quite tangled in that regard. But the way memory works in the brain, it is very emotion driven. We can know something's important, like important information for an exam or for a test or presentation, and we can sort of revise it and revise it and it'll go in eventually. But it's neutral. It has no emotional content. So it's hard to remember. Whereas something's emotional we tend to remember it far more vividly because the hippocampus is the part of the brain which creates new memories from wrapping all the different sensory information together into a specific bundle we call a memory. But also we've got the amygdala, which is very close to the hippocampus, which adds the emotional flavor to a memory. It's a very important hub of the emotional system. So the amygdala sort of injects emotion into memories or tags memories as having, this is a highly emotional memory, remember this. This is neutral memory, this is not a priority. And although logically and rationally we know some things are important, Our memory system is so older than that. It's far more fundamental. It goes with emotion more often than not. So these powerful emotional memories have more presence in our brain. We have a certain dedicated system to make sure these things are remembered because up until recently in evolutionary history, our brains have relied on emotion to differentiate what's important and what's not. And it still does that to a large degree.
0: I wonder about this sort of like the idea of learned embarrassment. And I guess if we go right back to the, the beginning of time, the sort of monotheistic religions have Adam and Eve's embarrassment at nakedness as the kind of the fall of humanity and the fall of man and everything. Is that because it's so intrinsic, this idea of shame or embarrassment to who we are as people, that it's even fed into the
1: world's religions? Yeah, I imagine so. Humans are ultra-social. Like so much of our brains and our sort of sense of self and awareness of the world is determined by other people and our interactions with them and our relationships with them. So we are extremely conscious of status. With social spaces, we also exist in a social hierarchy. A lot of studies have shown that being at the, the bottom rung of the social hierarchy is a very stressful existence. We're just consciously, even sort of subconsciously, just pretty sensitive to anything which could cause us to lose face in front of others.
0: So, is there an evolutionary value to embarrassment? You were talking about the rungs that people exist on in hierarchies. Does the embarrassment help us sort of survive and prosper in a certain
1: way? Is it something that's useful to us as a species? Yeah, absolutely. One of the reasons it goes back to the social aspect again. That's, in many ways, the key to our evolutionary success. If you're born into a human tribe. You don't need to be faster or stronger off or camouflage, be good at hunting and tearing things apart with your teeth because the tribe takes care of all that because we're too cooperative. So the usual evolutionary forces which shape species into having bigger teeth or bright colors, all these other things which ensure or help survival of the species and attract mates, those weren't really necessary for humans. Our survival was determined by coexistence with the tribe, our community. And therefore, being better at relating to other people and connecting with them became a sort of evolutionary driving force for humans. But the thing about survival is it's cognitively very straightforward. You eat, hunt. Don't die. That's basically the drivers you've got, and it's kind of hard not to keep that you know, straight in your head with minimal brain power. But when your existence or your survival depends on coexisting with other complex beings, you need more intelligence. Be able to like evaluate: okay, who are my friends with? What do they need from me? How can I make myself more popular or more successful in this tribe? Like who? You know, all these interactions, all these relationships you have, you're constantly assimilating other people's mental states and like their actions within your own brain. So, a deep seated aversion, a discomfort to losing face, to losing status, to you know, jeopardizing our position within the tribe was an evolutionary advantage. So, we have this, you know, the memory system goes, right, you did that thing, that was wrong. Never forget that. <laughs> don't ever, ever forget that because we don't want that happening again. So, keep playing it until you learn and you might never learn. So, I'm going to keep playing it again, again, again until the message is cemented. But then it becomes sort of, you know, hard to forget. So, it's definitely a survival. Advantage being embarrassed or being prone to embarrassment for the human brain because that is sort of the context we've evolved in.
0: I'm wondering whether embarrassing moments tend to stem from a particular point in life when maybe the brain is growing rapidly. Like I imagine a lot come from teenage years. And is that because that teenage years is when we really start to get a sense of ourselves in relation to the other people in our human tribe, whether that's the school or family or, or so on?
1: Yeah, that is absolutely the case. The adolescent brain is perhaps the most sensitive to this sort of thing, because when you hit adolescence, your brain, it's being overhauled. It's becoming more efficient to prepare for adult life, independence. Because when you're a child, your brain is extremely absorbent, so it remembers pretty much everything. Not in any particularly you know, useful order, perhaps, and not easily accessible, but if you look at brain scans or brain tissue from like a six-year-old and a like a 15-year-old, the 15-year-old has... Far fewer connections which suggest that they haven't learned as much. Basically, your brain starts clearing away all the clutter when you're a hit adolescent. So all the stuff you don't need for adult life is taken away. When you're like 14, 15, the more fundamental parts of your brain, which process emotions, and emotion reactions, they're more efficient than ever. They're, they've been updated. And suddenly you've got a supercharged emotion system. And the part of your brain which is responsible for controlling that, keeping in check, is still being worked on. So when you're a teenager, your emotions are far more potent and far more influential. It's not that teenagers can't control them because of course they can. They do all the time. It's just it's harder for them to do that and the emotions have more of an impact. And therefore, you know, things that happen in your teens tend to stay with you forever. Teenagers are more preoccupied with popularity and being accepted and being cool because their brains are worked that way and therefore they are far more sensitive to embarrassment and uh, to being judged by others than at any other time in your life. That's when the embarrassment factor really ramps up.
0: That's fantastic. You've you've explained five very difficult years of my life there. Has there been much academic research into this, sort of particularly the awkwardness of memory, or is it something
1: that scientists don't really study? Where does it sit in your discipline? It's very commonly studied. I mean, my own PhD was in the formation of memory and retrieval and how this works, but specifically with embarrassment to a certain extent, it is, but not so much. Like the, the field of emotion research is very broad and disparate. It's like hubs here and there and different aspects and different angles. And one of the reasons for that is there is no actual scientific consensus on what emotion is presently. There's lots of schools of thought as to, oh, no, we think they're this, and no, no, we think they're that. And when you have different experiments relying on different definitions of emotion, you end up with often conflicting results. So like say if you did a survey, of like how many pets are in the uk two separate surveys one defined pets as cats dogs rabbits or fish that's your very very strict definition of pets and that's you know you get a certain number but if you your your definition is more broad like any non-human animal which lives in your house so that obviously you have to include like termites and things like that so you obviously get a much bigger number but both of these are questionable data and it's hard to study things like embarrassment in isolation because you know how do we define these things and the emotion is so widespread throughout the brain but yeah the impact of emotional memory is very much a focus of research but specifically embarrassment and Quinsworthy that's sort of like very much a subsection in my experience we don't delve too much into the specific emotions just that this emotion and memory combine in this way to create this result so it's a bit more indirect than specific but yes there's a lot of data about it I suppose embarrassment is something we learn from
0: society and the culture we grow up in, isn't it? It's sort of quite subjective. One thing might be embarrassing in one
1: culture and not in another. So it's, it's, is it quite a slippery thing to try
0: and research in
1: that way? Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things which shows just how social humans are. We regard as ultra-social. We're technically the most social species on Earth by most metrics. Embarrassment as an emotion only works in the context of other people being around. Say if I was in the bathroom brush my teeth and suddenly all my clothes fell off i would be surprised oh, that's weird you know but that's not meant to happen i'll have to speak to a tailor <laughs> what's going on here But if i was like checking into a hotel and my clothes fell off that would be mortifying because exact same experience but because other people are around in the context of it it's far more humiliating because everyone can see me even things like guilt you know these only make sense in terms of being aware of other people's emotional state and reactions to us the culture you grew up in really does shape your emotional reactions in so many ways even like the things we react to emotions are constantly being reappraised and updated and if you have an emotional reaction your brain recognizes okay so i had that reaction and this was the outcome didn't like that outcome next time i won't react like this or i've learned that this isn't the right response so you know someone criticizes you you get really angry and flip the desk over then it turns out that was your appraisal meeting with your boss that's that's a bad reaction to have to that context so you learn then no don't do that again
0: Today we're talking about those memories that are mortifying and tattooed forever onto our brains, often leaping to the forefront when we least expect it. If I look back into my own 1980s childhood, some of the starkest memories I have are... Well, let's just say I'm glad I've not met many of you in the flesh when I recall Halifax in about 1984 and having an accident in my pants because I was so nervous that a pair of toy scales would sell at the Blue Peter Bring and Buy sale before my mum arrived with 5p. What a thing to admit on a podcast. Now I've shared my embarrassing memory. What's Dean's?
1: I was always kind of in a shy retirement nerd, I think especially public, but I, uh, I sort of tried to turn that around in my first few years of university, and I sort of put myself forward rather, you know, to try and compensate. I ended up asking and being granted the permission to have my own radio show on the student radio, like a half an hour a week. I was so very confident, like, yeah, this is going to be great. I'm going to be really funny because, you know, everybody is sort of very prim and proper. And I'm the, the Welsh Valley boy. I'll, I'll shake things up. Um, <laughs> but I uh, sort of got distracted during the technical orientation meeting. And my first ever show was me sat down. I like, didn't know how to work the levels. So just broadcast me going, help, ah, what, what's happening? <laughs> I can't, I can't work it. And, you know, just really quite humiliated. So yes, that's when I can't seem to shake. But
0: there's the other point of embarrassment that it's also very funny, you know, like recounting your embarrassing tales At the time, it might be awful, but as time goes on, some of these embarrassing situations can be hilarious. We like to share them and sort of almost deprecate ourselves in the social group.
1: How does embarrassment link to humour? Humour itself is a intriguing concept neurologically. It's really hard to pin down because human brain is so good at recognising and processing humour and reacting to it. It happens too fast for our scanners to to track, like brain scanners, like fMRI, the go-to for monitoring brain activity. It's very, very impressive technology, but it's got very good spatial resolution. So you can narrow it down to a certain part of the brain and look at what's happening in there. But it's got poor temporal resolution, so it, it can't make spot activity, which happens like less than half a second. But humor happens even faster than that, like it's like a fraction of a millisecond like the like brain does it really well. and I think the basis of humor, as far as we know is incongruity. Something has happened which isn't meant to happen according to our understanding of the world, so it's incongruous with what we think should happen. When the incongruity is resolved in a harmless way, our brain really likes that. so we're like oh, I've learned new things about the world. this is good. The brief tension I had from the incongruousness has been resolved, and therefore it's you know, this is funny, I can laugh at this. So embarrassment usually is still you know, things which weren't meant to happen happening, and at the time you say it's really embarrassing it 's mortifying but there's also something called the fading affect bias, which is like it 's almost like a self preservation process that the the brain engages in, which is emotional memories are the most sort of enduring, but negative emotions fade faster than positive emotions, so yeah there's lots of ways the brain works humor and embarrassment together, and embarrassment memories can become funny given enough time and enough sort of a distance because you you can approach them more neutrally and the positive aspects will remain hopefully
0: so i was wondering about that denying embarrassing memories and failing to embrace them could become a problem like you could imagine people like andrew tate for example the notorious online misogynist who takes himself very seriously i don't imagine he embraces his embarrassing memories and i'm wondering if that not
1: embracing it kind of holds us back as people and as a society Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah. It's a failure to learn. Like these things happen for a reason. Embarrassment happens because your brain has been taught something. Okay. If I do this, the outcome is negative. Therefore, I shouldn't do that again because I will lose approval of others. I will lose I will lose face. My status will drop. And the human brain usually doesn't like that. So people who are I know, so stubborn in the face of their own failings, they Lose ability to recognise changes that need to be made. I mean, Tate's an obvious public example, very really like high-profile one. But um, I was on the comedy scene for quite a few years in around Wales and the Southwest, and any comedian will tell you, you when well, no, there's thousands upon thousands of aspiring comedians in the country, but there are always one or two in every community who never have a bad gig. You know, whenever they go in front of an audience and. It doesn't go well. It's never their fault. It's all like, a oh, rubbish audience, or the room wasn't right, or you know, there's a match on. So they've always got an excuse for someone else for their inability to do what they want to do. But then they never improve. Their confidence is so bulletproof that they can't recognize when changes need to be made. You know, someone said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. It's not insanity. This, but it's also like you know, a, a failure to recognize when you need to do something different. And that happens a lot when it comes to embarrassments. Like, okay, I did that, and that was embarrassing, I shouldn't do that again. But you can either sort of accept it and accept the consequences, or like this is a lesson you need to learn, or shut out and deny it all. And that becomes more psychologically comfortable for you. But the main danger of it, I've always said, is that uh, with the online world, what you get is, no matter how you know, ludicrous a theory you have, or how dangerous or wild or unlikely a theory or idea or belief you hold – you will now find someone who agrees with you. And because of the way our brains work, they were so social, other people agree with us, often acts as just basic confirmation that we are right. So you get people like Tate or you know, other influencer styles or like you know, controversial public figures who will say whatever they want. And because they have a fan base, this will be validated by them. And then they'll push them to further extremes of saying, no, I'm always right because whenever I say something, people tell me I'm right. It's a very, very risky, slippery slope to go down if you're going to start denying or blocking out any sense of embarrassment.
0: Well, I think I'll remember this conversation for a long time, and thankfully for all the right reasons. Remember, embrace your embarrassing memories for the sake of humanity. That's it for us today on Why, and thank you to Dr. Dean Burnett. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to hear more from Dean, do check out his podcast, Why Does This Thing Exist? We'll be back with more wonders of psychology, physics, tech, and whatever else tickles our synapses very soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition, and follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Luke Turner asking... Why? See you next time.
1: Why was written and presented by Luke Turner. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by James Parrott. Theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production.